And I was thinking as I set out to uh, write this teaching that Christians love to speculate about other potential Christians. You know, uh, the possibility of celebrity Christians, for example, is a divisive and, and exciting one. So one will say, hey, did you hear that Chris Pratt is a Christian? He's over here tweeting Bible verses all day long. And then still another person will say, no, he can't be. You know, he swears or he, star he stars in movies with iffy content. And then another person will come along and say, well, did you hear that Shia LaBeouf is a Christian? He, he claims to have found Jesus during the filming of the, the World War II epic Fury. And then another person will say, no, that can't be true. You know, true, he's in jail again <laughs> for like the 10th time. And then, uh, you know, many will argue, did you realize, my gosh, the vast majority of every musician to ever win any kind of award must be a Christian because they all thank Jesus and God when they win the award, whatever the heck that means. And then many will rebut that. No, it's a sham. What if they're all really Scientologists, you know, like Will and Jada Smith and Elizabeth Moss and, and Beck, the musician, not my kid. And, uh, um, almost everyone, I imagine, uh, has had the painful debate with extended family, like on the holidays or whatever it might be, well, they'll say like, oh, did you know given politician is a Christian? And, and someone else will say, um, well, they certainly say they are. And then someone else will argue, well, you know, if the professing Christian politician person belongs to the right, then the Christians on the left say that that can't possibly be true. And if he's on the left, then those on the right won't have anything to do with it. And why would they be, you know? Why would anyone actually be a disciple of Jesus? Because they say they are, you know, they claim uh, Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, which is this uh, popular term that's strangely absent from the entire Bible. So why wouldn't anyone claim to actually follow Jesus? Or, or why would anyone claim to follow Jesus and then not authentically follow Jesus? And how would we know? Well, because their political views are not the same as our political views. Or, or maybe it's because they swear or they appear nude in a film or they got arrested or whatever it might be. And as the whole volley of, well, are they and aren't they carries on, inevitably, the tender-hearted follower of Jesus will raise their hand with a gentle interjection, and they'll say, guys, only God knows their hearts. We can never claim to know if a person is or is not, quote-unquote, saved. And yet, interestingly, Jesus, it seems to me, disagrees with all three positions. So with that, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. There's actually quite a bit of work and uh, Bible due tonight. Are you guys ready? Great, thank you. How's it going up there, Ellie? So far, so good? Not too crazy? Awesome. All right, for months now, we've been working our way through a collection of Jesus' teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're actually nearing the end. Uh, this has been, in essence, Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. Meaning, what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus, the thing we say over and over and again? The Sermon on the Mount is it. That's what it is. And the content of this manifesto is nothing less than extraordinary. It's a radical collection of ethics, of spiritual disciplines, of lifestyle formation. It is no less than the how-to of life for an apprentice of Jesus. And in chapter 7, Jesus has already unpacked his radical way of life, and he begins to conclude this collection of teaching units, not with a pat on the back or with a tender emotional moment like we like to do in the sermonizing world, but he ends with a series of warnings. 
And if you can remember back to March, the first warning we already did is about uh, the two options of life. Jesus says, the way of Jesus is a narrow road that leads to life, and everything else is a broad road that leads to destruction. And when you read that teaching, you're like, geez, that's intense, and it sounds so exclusive. It's jarring, but Jesus is not done uh, surprising us. See, what I love about Jesus is that he is often like, you know, a band with an image that is more popular than the band itself. Um, Here, for example, is one of the most iconic album covers of all time. There it is. Uh, This is the uh, debut Joy Division album, Unknown Pleasures. It was designed by Peter Seville using an image of radio waves, uh, who was, I'm sure, unaware back in 1979, I believe, of how the popularity of this image would exceed the popularity of the band itself by far. I see this album cover constantly. Maybe you haven't noticed because you just didn't know what you're looking for, but now that you've seen it, look for it. It'll be on T-shirts and mugs and coffee tables and posters and tote bags and baby onesies and tattoos and hats, anything you can possibly imagine. But interestingly, uh, Joy Division, if you know anything about the band, is not a terribly likable band in the traditional sense, shall we say. So the use of unknown pleasures... Uh, as a, a, in popular culture has become kind of a punchline, synonymous for wanting to look cool without really knowing what it is that you claim to like. And Tyson, I know that you, Tyson's here. He has an unknown pleasure shirt. And you actually like Joy Division. We've had a conversation about that. So he's, he's off the hook. He, now he's going to feel like he can never wear that shirt again. <laughs> wear it, man. You look great. Don't be ashamed. If you like it, you know. But in the same way, it's the first thing I thought of. In the same way, People, particularly those on the left theologically and celebrities who are like spiritual but not religious, uh, love to claim Jesus. They love Jesus' compassion and his mercy, the way that he favored the poor and the oppressed, that he was essentially, essentially one of the original feminists. All the way back in the first century, he empowered the weak and vulnerable. And who wouldn't love those things about Jesus? They're very likable attributes of Jesus. And those things are true. They're, they're true and beautifully so. But... Many of those same characters love the idea of Jesus being one cool option among many. So they like, you know, Jesus, and they like the Buddha. They like Jesus, and they like Hindu. I'm Hindu and Christian, or whatever it might be. All good paths lead to the same basic destination. Just be a good person, practice justice and compassion, all that kind of stuff. And it's all the same thing. And honestly, I can't think of anyone who rejects such a notion with language quite as severe as Jesus himself. (laughs) So let's read from Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you who do evil. Wow. Now, this whole intense unit begins with this in verse 15. Beware, or that line can be translated, be on the lookout for who 
false prophets. In Greek, the term is pseudo-prophetons, that is pseudo-prophets, exactly what it sounds like, fakers, posers, not really prophets, false prophets. Now, what is a false prophet uh, in the truest sense? In this case, the term prophet really just refers to someone who speaks for God. So here, a false prophet refers to someone who, one, claims to speak for God, either directly or indirectly, Two, is not truly appointed by God. And three, does not actually practice the way of Jesus. Now, we hear a term like false prophet. We almost immediately excuse ourselves from the conversation, right? Because we think of like the sandwich board guy yelling on the street corner or some like fiery outspoken personality who speaks out into the community with passion and conviction, but then later on gets exposed as a phony. But that's about what, like 1% of us or even less? In this context, a prophet is really just someone who claims to speak for God. For us, that's almost never in the direct sense, you know, meaning we rarely come across individuals who boldly claim to communicate God's direct message from him. They exist, but they're a little less ordinary. In our context, we don't usually call individuals who claim to speak for God prophets as often as we call them pastors and teachers, leaders, visionaries, bloggers, podcasters, people who claim to speak for God. And remember, if you claim to follow Jesus at all, you also claim to represent his way in the world, which is another way of saying you claim to speak for God. You don't claim perfection, of course, but Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, by teaching that his disciples were to act as a light in the world that would reveal God's goodness to those who are in darkness. That is, those without God might see what God is like through Jesus' disciples. So when you talk about Jesus and who he is and who he is not, you speak for God in a certain sense. And the notion of a false prophet is, of course, nothing new at this point in the Bible. It's a prevalent theme that surfaces again and again in the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's just a couple of examples. Look at this from Deuteronomy. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, meaning it actually comes true, but then the prophet says, let's follow other gods, <laughs> gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Here's another from Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I've not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. So Jesus is picking up on this existing motif throughout the scriptures, but it doesn't stop with Jesus. Almost every New Testament author comments on this exact same issue. Here's an example from Paul in 2 Timothy. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. How true is that all the time? My gosh. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Here's another from Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people. Just as, there were just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved contact, conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has, been, has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Here's one more from 1 John. 
Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The point that Jesus and the authors of Scripture are making with great emphasis again and again and again, this is just a small selection, is that fake prophets are a very real thing, and they are dangerous. So watch out. Of course, for most of us, this is not something that we love to discuss, uh, in Christian fundamentalist circles, they love to talk about this all day long because there, everyone's a false prophet except for them. You know, it's really easy. Uh, a while back, someone showed me a, a podcast of some uh, pastor fellow on the East Coast who had taken a teaching that I'd done and dissected it on his show to reveal, reveal me as a false teacher. And it was hilarious because the, the way that this guy went about it, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert. I do have podcasts. So I know something. But he had... The way he went about it was that he'd play some of the teaching and then he like hits pause on it and he goes, no, false teacher, you know, like that. And I'm like, this is going to take forever, man. Just do your review. You know, you just leave my part out of it. You're making them listen to me. So anyway, I was thinking, good grief. This is going to take forever. I was listening to a while of, you know, it went on for hours. I'm, I was done with it. But if you take a passing glance of this fellow's website, you could see that for years he had made a lifestyle of condemning hundreds of other pastors as false teachers for just about anything you can imagine in the world, which just begs the question, dude, how are you the only right person <laughs> that's out there? So guys like that are out there for sure. They exist. But in our context, that's really extreme behavior, which is why we laugh at a simple story about it. Our context is more of kind of like a progressive, open-minded um, sort of, uh, you know, that's the air we breathe. So to hear about judgment and to hear about false prophets kind of makes us squirm a bit. Thus, this is really an unpopular text, to say the least. Unpopular because it often grates against our theology, our notions of loving acceptance, the influence of the new modern notion of tolerance, or simply because we don't like it. It makes Jesus sound really crazy hardcore all of a sudden. And yet, here it is. There are people who claim to speak for God, and they are fakes because they do not actually follow Jesus. Now, don't hear that and think, oh, crap, that's me. Um, I'm sure I've misspoken from time to time. I know that I make mistakes as a disciple of Jesus. This is not, listen to me, this is not about people who attempt to listen to God and then humbly tell other people, but who err from time to time. That's fine. Hopefully most of us do that in the sense that we're at least trying. This is not about sincere apprentices of Jesus who stumble along the way. That's all of us, anyone who claims to follow Jesus. This text is about those who live in active disobedience in an ongoing sense to the way of Jesus, but who wear a mask of sincerity. So Jesus offers to his disciples a method of detection, and that's to examine the fruit. Now, what is the fruit? Jesus gives the answer later in this passage. The fruit is, in his own words, doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And his logic is really simple. If the fruit is good, the tree is good. Well, bad fruit, bad tree. It makes perfect sense. How do you know if someone is a false prophet? Examine his or her life to see if they actually do the will of God. Now, obviously, there's a ton of nuance to this, so just hang in there. We'll get to a little bit of that in a couple of minutes. Interestingly, Jesus offers no protocol on what is to be done with false prophets. Isn't that weird? He simply teaches his disciples to learn to distinguish between lies and the truth. 
And then he assures his disciples that judgment is coming, really, for both those who bear good fruit and those who, bears bad, who bear bad fruit. And he does this by presenting this hypothetical bit of narrative. And the narrative is as interesting as it is scary. <laughs> In it, a group of people are before Jesus, and they plead with Jesus. They even call him Lord, and they appeal to the many you know, awesome signs and wonders that are featured on their resumes. They say that they've done prophecies, they've cast out demons, um, they've performed miraculous stuff, and yet they do not actually follow Jesus. And this is fascinating because it infers that one is capable of doing cool, even miraculous stuff, and yet not authentically following Jesus. Thus, outward signs of even like miraculous things are not necessarily indicative of authentic discipleship. And Jesus rejects the false prophets for two reasons, the first being that he doesn't know them. And what the heck does that mean? You know, Jesus is yet to be formally introduced to these people. Doesn't he know everyone? Doesn't he say that specifically? Well, yeah, but here, you know, knowing refers to much more than simple intellectual awareness. It describes relational intimacy. So earlier this week, I was on the phone with a close friend, and she was furious. She was screaming, not at me, you know, I just happened to be on the phone at the time, about the way that she had been treated by some people who had been very patronizing, very condescending to her. And she was yelling and saying, they don't know me. You know, they, they don't have relational equity with me, so they can't talk to me like this. And of course, they know her in the basic sense, because they're sitting down having a conversation with her, but they don't know her. There's no relational connectedness or intimacy there. So when Jesus says, I never knew you, he means that he was never in intimate, dynamic relationship with them. Now, to be clear, it is abundantly, abundantly apparent from the entirety of the Bible that Jesus' desire is to be in relationship with everyone. So if they don't know him, that's on them, not on Jesus. The second reason that he uh, sends them away is because they are evildoers. Or in context, it's really just a juxtaposition of those who do God's will and don't do God's will. So they do evil rather than the will of God. Now, shortly before this passage that we're reading tonight, Jesus summarized the entire Old, Old Testament and his Sermon on the Mount by saying that the most important commandment in all of the Torah is what? Oh, oh thank God. Good job, guys. Good job. Yes, love God, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thus, to do the will of God means to what? Right, exactly. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Both things are evidenced by a life of outward action, not just an inward disposition type of thing. That to say, you will know a disciple of Jesus by examining them, examining them for a life that reveals a love for God and for other people. On the other hand, when a life indicates an absence of love for God and for other people, it is like a tree that bears rotten fruit. Such a person is not actually a disciple of Jesus. And listen, I'm absolutely aware that this grates against our modern sensibilities. In our culture, you know, judge is about as profane as the word gets. Um, in our culture, any assessment of another person's character is unjustified at best. Only God, you know, can judge if God even exists at all. But the truth is that everyone judges in the sense that we all make observations and assessments about the, even the character of other people. So um, this is not an innately wrong thing. It can be when we covered that back in Jesus' whole thing on judging. Uh, but it can also just be what it means to be a human. For instance, when you read in the news about a parent who has abused their child, you rightly assess, I hope, that that's not right. 
and that something should be done about that. That person is unfit to have that child, at least right now or whatever it might be, and something should be done to rectify that situation. Those are all judgments and judgments about another person's character. So there are times in conversation in which I'll hear people discuss like a famous person or a politician, whatever it might be, and someone will say, oh, they're a Christian. And someone else will say, like, no, they're not. And then another person will say, hey, 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 we can never have any idea <laughs> if they're a Christian or not. Only God knows their hearts. And while it's true that God absolutely know, knows more than we do about any given person and about the status of their heart, absolutely. But here, you have a teaching from Jesus where he is encouraging his disciples to examine the lives of those who claim to follow him in order to determine whether or not they're actually lying. In this case, false prophets are often gifted leaders, but who do not do the will of God in the ordinary things of life. In other words, what you do matters. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Scott McKnight writes this, Sensitive theologians are sometimes nervous about the way Jesus talks, and sometimes we need to exercise a special caution, but we need to trust Jesus said what he wanted. No one is saved by works, of course, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus. Now, listen, because uh, the temptation for like the more type A person or Enneagram 1 person might be to then ask, well, what kind of works? And how many works exactly? And done in what way? But the problem is that this is not like a quantitative idea in that sense. So let's use an analogy. Abby and I got married more than 10 years ago now. There was a ceremony. There were vows, all of that. Now, imagine that immediately following said ceremony, we both moved into different homes and we no longer shared any meaningful sense of life at all. And if someone were to ask me, like, hey, are you married? Yeah, I'm married. And then I described the paradigm to them. And if they said, well, that's not really a marriage, well, I could point to the certificate in the legal sense. I could show them photos of the ceremony. I could indicate that, no, we got married for sure. Now, imagine this confrontational person who's having this conversation with me saying, but that's not what it means to be married. Now, what if I then responded by saying, well, okay, well, how many married people things do I have to do to be married? And what sort? And can I have a list? And how do I do them and when? When a person's married, uh, anyone who actually gets to know them just comes into that information. <laughs> Similarly, when one follows Jesus, this is evidenced by the way that you live the way that you talk, the way that you treat other people, the way that you handle your money, the way that you care for the people that are in your life, the way that um, you become impassioned for things, what things and why. And of course, we all have different God-given personalities, so don't hear me wrong. This doesn't mean that if you're not like Cam and you're not like, you know, always smiling and wanting to have coffee with everyone and tell them about Jesus and get them saved, then you're not actually following Jesus. Each person evidences their discipleship in some unique ways, and then we have some things in common. So the other day, I was on the phone being interviewed by this fellow who, who was asking me about, like, uh, the books and the music that I'd written, and he asked me, why do you make Jesus such a consistent theme in the things that you write? And I was like, oh, isn't it fairly obvious? I, I like that guy. I'm into him. You know, I think about him a lot. So when you're, when you're practicing the way of Jesus... You, all of us will have certain lifestyle decisions in common. You'll be the type of person who reads the scriptures, who prays. That might come up when you get to know someone really well. 
Um, and then you might have unique things that are just kind of yours. Maybe you do have the gregarious personality, and that makes you easy to spot for the rest of us. So thank you. Uh, a while ago, Abby and I were at breakfast somewhere, and uh, the manager was stepping out to like greet people. But there was something like a little over the top and authentic. It seemed to me authentic about his personality. And I told Abby, I was like, that joker follows Jesus. You just watch. And then uh, months later, I met someone who worked there. And I was like, hey, does that guy follow Jesus? And they're like, yeah, how'd you know that? You know, sometimes you can spot it. Other times, it's a little less obvious. But if that's not you, if you're not the type of person that's like, wow, they're so over the top nice all the time, that's fine. Um, like being married, when you follow Jesus, when you love God and you love other people, your life will act as evidence in some way. If a life does not, Jesus says, then it's not a life of discipleship, which is intense, huh? But Jesus' proposed method of determining true and false disciples is not necessarily the only method. Of course, common sense dictates that many outward works of lifestyle can themselves be faked, like the gentleman I saw in the restaurant. That could be a put on. The point is not uh, to invest in this system as a tool of consistent, infallible accuracy uh, because it's so complicated, for one, or to doubt in the test of fruit like a cynic. Oh, we can never know. We can never have any evidence. We can't do the fruit thing. The point is actually, I think, in Jesus' brilliant rhetoric. Look at this. While Jesus is sincerely teaching his disciples how to be on guard against false disciples, false prophets, he's also presenting a stark, hardcore portrait of authentic discipleship designed to convict, convict the listener as they learn. So it's a teaching tool, and it's a really clever one at that. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're sitting on the hillside. You're listening to your teacher and your master warn you that authentic, disciples, authentic discipleship will be evident by examining one's life. And you're thinking, you're nodding your head thinking, okay, okay, got it. Examine the fruit. Makes sense. For, wait a minute. Does my life evidence the fruit of discipleship? And then I imagine Jesus would give you the wink, you know, and say, exactly the right question to ask my student. And there's another interesting implication from the teaching. To Jesus, think about this, simple acts of loving faithfulness to God and to people are more valuable than extraordinary feats and miracles. And don't misunderstand that. Miracles are maybe what we'd call the things that the Holy Spirit does are of tremendous value for disciples of Jesus. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself writes that we should eagerly desire the things that the Spirit does. Prophecy, words of knowledge, wisdom, healing, tongues, all that stuff. You should want it because it's good stuff. But if one does not love God and love other people in the simpleness of life, love your enemies, surf and sacrifice for other people, then Jesus is uninterested in the prophecies and the miraculous feats. So while the test of true fruit is generally reliable, it's frustratingly complicated. One, because it's not easy. Uh, it's certainly not quick. You have to have long-term access to someone. It's not simple. It's terribly complicated and nuanced. Um, often what appears to be bad fruit may prove to be an uncharacteristic mistake, um, uh, you know, like a, a moment in time, and you realize, oh, that was just that. Other times, um, what appears to be an uncharacteristic mistake is actually an indi indi indication of consistent, unrepentant disobedience. And you learn that over time as well. So I know disciples of Jesus, uh, leaders who were guilty of mistakes that, if it were just a hasty inspection, may have been understood as bad fruit in the, in the way that Jesus uses it. But ultimately, it proved to be a season of failure that came to an end with repentance and restitution. On the other hand, I've walked with individuals who seemed to be walking in repentance, but who were in reality really good at disguising a life that was not actually dedicated to Jesus. 
So it's terribly complicated. Uh, Matthew's scholar, R.T. France, puts it like this. Doing the will of my Father in heaven is not merely an ethical category that will also includes to know, that will also include to be known, to know and be known by Jesus the Lord. A professed allegiance to Jesus falls short on that. And so even does the enthusiastic performance of charismatic activities in his name. In other words, it's not enough to just say that you follow Jesus. In fact, it's not even enough to have all these outward miracles on your resume. And notice something bold about Jesus' words. In this picture, Jesus confronts the, confronts the false prophets in the future. He says, on that day. And he says, I will tell them plainly. He is presenting himself as the one who decides who will and who will not enter the kingdom of the future, which is a bold claim if, if there's ever been one. And look, when Jesus says, I never knew you, he's saying that the basis for entry or expulsion is whether or not one knows and is known by Jesus. And what's more, look at the language that Jesus uses to deny them entry. He says, away from me. That is the punishment in this picture. They must go away from Jesus, which is incredible. And it's harsh, to say the least. And there's this surprising thread woven into this teaching. As we've already learned, what you do matters. And what you do, that is, you know, how you live, not only matters, it becomes the basis for how you will be judged. Again, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it like this. You can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who has spent much time with judgment texts in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment scene in the Bible is a judgment of works. If you don't believe him, let's take just a really quick tour. Look at this one from Deuteronomy. If you fully obey Yahweh God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come to, on you and accompany you if you obey Yahweh God. However, if you do not obey Yahweh God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And I'm sparing you the list of curses. <laughs> But that's the Old Testament, right? So, you know, all oh, that's weird, that's old stuff. Let's look at this from Jesus himself. For the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Later in the New Testament, this from Paul. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So let's pause for a moment. Some of you, if you have any familiarity with church vernacular and the way Christians often talk about what it means to follow Jesus, then this probably grates on you. Um, you, you, maybe you're confused and you're asking like, wait, I thought the only thing that one has to do to be saved is to accept Jesus as king. Aren't we saved by faith, not by works? So let's do a, a very brief analogy in systematic theology. Let's say that God is embarking on a project. Now, I've been doing a lot of the, the home remodeling stuff lately, so we'll just say he's building a house. Um, now, for this task, 
God would like to assemble a team of people who will work alongside him in building the house. God looks out on the selection of available people. He wants all of them to help. That's the kind of guy he is. But he looks out and sees that they're all unwell. They're all incapable incapable of manual labor. So if God were to invite them onto the team, they'd be incapable of joining it. They're sick, they're enfeebled, they're immobile, whatever it is. So if for God to extend any sort of meaningful invitation, he'll, he'll have to heal the candidates first. And he does. Again, the kind of guy he is. He heals them all. They get better. Now, if they want, they can join the team. If he invites them, it's a real invitation. What must they do to be invited? Nothing. The invitation is free. Gets, it's given to everyone. Absolutely no qualifications. So let's say that some accept God's invitation. They're like, yeah, I'm into that. I'll help you build the house. Others are like, no, thanks. Uh, but God gets a team nonetheless. Now, there is a house building team. What must they do? Build the house, right. So let's say that there's a certain individual who says, yeah, I'm in, I'll help build the house. They join the team, but then they just sit down in place and they do nothing for the entire length of time that it takes to build the house, nothing. If someone passes by and says, hey, what are you doing here? If they just point to the construction site and say, I'm, I'm building a house, wouldn't that passerby be well within their rights to say, how? How exactly? Wouldn't the team and indeed God himself be justified in asking, are you really on this team at all? Because you're not building the house. And when the work is complete and the wages are distributed, what will God say to that person? And if you don't like the idea of comparing discipleship to a job for which there are wages, good and bad, take it out with Jesus. I stole it from him. The the point is that Uh, One does nothing to be invited onto the team. One must only accept the invitation to join the team. But then there's work to do. So what work is it that we're called to do exactly? What, What kind of outworking of one's life indicates true discipleship? For the answer, let's go to none other than Dallas Willard. Those to be trusted are the ones who actually learn to do what Jesus taught was best. Calling him Lord or even doing astonishing things in his name is no substitute. The one who enters the kingdom of the heavens is the one who does the will of Jesus' Father in the heavens. The will of the Father is precisely what Jesus has been teaching here on the hillside, the real meaning of the law and the prophets. In other words, the answer is the Sermon on the Mount. This is exactly why we put so much into learning the practices of Jesus together. Or this from scholar Dale Bruner. The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount are less sensational and more simple. Revering Scripture's commandments, casting out one's anger, the miracles of sexual purity and marital fidelity, the careful speech that does not misuse God's name by oaths or careless speech, and most deeply, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. So notice how simple and yet how deep the true qualification of discipleship actually runs. This means that in in examining one another, in evaluating our leaders, in assessing conflict, conflict, it isn't enough to ask, like, well, do they proclaim Jesus? And it isn't enough to ask, are they empowered by the Spirit to do cool stuff? Instead, you begin with, are they working to get rid of anger and live at peace with other people? Are they reconciling relationships in their lives as much as it depends on them? Do they strive to exterminate lust? Do their words have integrity? Do they love their enemies? You're not looking for perfection, again, but you're looking for a life in pursuit 
of these things. And notice how the call to watchfulness applies to both the left and the right. So there will be conservatives and fundamentalists who claim Jesus and do nothing to live into the gentle, enemy-loving compassion of Jesus. Politicians on the right who say all the right things to dupe so-called evangelicals, but who outwardly live in flagrant defiance of the way of Jesus. Jesus is saying it's a scam. Reject it. On the other hand, there will be post-evangelicals, they love to say, on the left who claim the thoughtfulness and the acumen and the loving grace of Jesus, but who do nothing to value the scriptures or embrace a lifestyle of disciplined self-denial. It's a trick. Don't buy it. Claiming Jesus, even doing outwardly Jesus-y things, is not the same thing as practicing the way of Jesus. Now, to end tonight, what the heck are we supposed to do with all this? And notice again, Jesus warns his disciples to beware false prophets. He doesn't say a single word about calling us into action against them, you know, stirring us up to go get them or something like that. He doesn't say to picket screenings of the new Rob Bell documentary. He doesn't say post-rebuttal podcast to every episode of The Liturgists. He doesn't ask for tweets from the right or the left. He simply says, beware, watch out. They, there are wolves and they want your blood. They're coming and they will get you. And the call to action is that, beware. Don't be scammed. Don't be fooled by them. Don't be led astray. And moreover, this is a call to reject the cunning of false prophets by embodying the true way. We are to become a people who are truly resolved to practice the way of Jesus. Not perfect, of course, not without stumbling and struggling and helping one another back up again and again and again, but truly resolved to walk the narrow road of discipleship, failure and all intact. And to do that, we must not go the way of laziness or the way of cynicism. We, so you can't live in constant, agitated fear of every false prophet hiding behind every bush. And you can't behave as though there's no difference between lies and the truth. It's all basically the same thing. Because the way of Jesus is not some nebulous thing interchangeable with many other paths. It is, to Jesus himself, the only road that leads to life. The other roads lead to death and destruction. Do not be led down the road that leads to death. And we do that by making our lives a testament with great seriousness to the way that we regard the truth found in Jesus. So uh, here's another analogy. I've told you guys stories about how I'm a, a movie person. There's a few quirks to this thing. One of them being that I don't care for uh, trailers for movies that I would actually like to see, so I will not watch them. So when I go to the movies, uh, I always sit down with earbuds in um, and, uh, and a, log, a loud song queued up. And if I notice in a moment that this is a trailer for a movie I'd like to see or I learned that along the way, I hit play and I look down and close my eyes so that the trailer won't ruin it for me. And uh, I have like an extension on my internet browser uh, that blocks spoilers for any movie that I choose. Big old red bar that says, this may contain a spoiler for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, you know. Um, you can get it too. It's called Unspoiler. There's part of my teaching for the night. Uh, and people say, man, that guy's serious about movies. And, and I know that's a silly analogy, but that's what I'm getting at. May our lives, even in the little things, in the quirks, say to others, man, they are serious about the way of Jesus. Not a fundamentalist, not a legalist, but one who is greatly concerned with loving God and loving other people. 
No, the way of Jesus is not one good path among many. It is the road that leads to life. So let us make our very lives evidence of this. In all our shortcomings and missteps, we persevere along the narrow road, and we will not be led away from it. Let's stand together and pray. Invite God's Spirit to come and speak again.